You're listening to a Reykjavik Grapevine podcast. During the fall of 2008, the Icelandic economy experienced what we could call a com- almost a complete collapse. Uh, the three major banks in Iceland, uh, called Glitnir, Landsbanki, and Kaupthing, all collapsed and were declared bankrupt. Uh, the whole society and the whole economy was in in turmoil, and uh, yeah, everything was just on edge. Most people associate the sixth of October with sort of marking sort of the the date of this economic collapse, which became kind of an almost a world-famous event because no other country, at least not no other Western country, was as much affected by the 2008 economic recession as it's kind of been called since. Uh, so I remember October 6th pretty vividly, Valor. What about, what about you? I think... Everyone who, who was alive in Iceland at that time remembers that date like like no other. Like previous generations might remember the break of World War Two or the Kennedy assassination. I think for nine eleven. Nine eleven was the that was something that we remember. Of course, yeah. everyone knows where they were. I mean, I sort of vaguely remember the Berlin Wall coming down as uh, one of the big uh, events, but I don't year. remember the exact moment. I, I remember the. Uh, the, the when Salcesco was assassinated. Yeah, I think yeah. that was. I mean, uh, we were still children then, but that sort of sticks out in memory. And of course, nine eleven. Everyone knows exactly that. I was working at a uh, an orphanage, <laughs> and everyone there was terrified. Of course, when listening to the radio. But it sounds like it happened somewhere in the early twentieth century. But it was two thousand one, and uh, yeah, and then it was October six, two thousand eight. Like this is the next event that everyone can remember. Yeah, um, I was um, the Reykjavik Grapevine, which had been published for about, what, five years at that point. We had an office downtown um, in a street called Vestugada. And I was at the office, and at noon on that Monday of October 6th, I uh, it was announced on the news that Landsbankin had gone bankrupt, collapsed, and had been taken over by... Uh, the state, or the financial authority, actually. And the Landsbankin is about, I don't know, two, three hundred meters away from that old office. Mm. And at, at noon, I, I saw like a couple of, or a few dudes, let's say dudes, like men my age at that point, like 24 or something, five, in really nice suits, sort of walking up the street. I'm assuming they were coming from the Landsbankin headquarters, and they were like absolutely devastated, it's like tears running down their faces and like their hair hair in a mess and you know wearing these really nice suits and i guess you know for them their sort of career had just sort of abruptly ended they had probably just lost their jobs and they were just in a state of utter confusion crying uh, in the middle of the street mm-hmm. walking towards their car or home or whatever mm-hmm. uh which was kind of a not not something you see every day um 
Yeah, these were the masters of the universe. You're used to seeing them. Yeah, because like they owned the town. Yeah, it was such a, such a psychological impact for, I think, everybody because we had been living in a weird dream for the past few years. Yeah. Uh, Iceland had g- gone from being like this complete backwater in many ways mm-hmm. into like having all of these businessmen mostly um, buying up companies abroad that, you know, we'd kind of heard of before mm-hmm. all over the, you know, in, in the UK and in, in Denmark and wherever. And everything seemed like, you know, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess we're good at this. And then, you know, we're, we're doing good here in business and, and everything is booming and, and, People are flying on private jets and and building uh, summer houses that are twenty times bigger than anything ever seen before in the country. And yeah, everything was an upswing, and everybody was sort of in on it. And it was kind of a part of our self identity. Yeah. We had become kind of like our self identity had become as Icelanders had become sort of intertwined with success in business abroad. Yeah, and then the whole sort of house of cards just collapsed in in an afternoon or something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, somehow we had convinced ourselves we were the world's greatest bankers, even though we had almost no history of banking (laughs) and very little experience, but we just went and did it. And I guess we can consider, I mean, this is at the moment, the afternoon where we knew it was over. When the prime minister came on TV, I was just at home and I watched his address, of course, like everyone did. Everybody, yeah. I was at some random bar downtown. Yeah. they had a TV. Yeah. And nobody really knew what what he was on about, what he was saying. He said, I talked a lot about banks, but in in the sort of fishing... uh, Terminologies, yeah. Yeah. Metaphors. We would be sucked into the maelstrom and and all that. And what's most scary of all, he ended his speech with God bless Iceland. Yeah, it's since become known as the God bless Iceland speech. And it's, it's it's all like, I guess like in the Icelandic language, you, you kind of use sailor or like fishing terms for like yeah for for as metaphors when things go array yeah so you, you just, and if you look at the speech it's just all full of such yeah metaphors uh you know all hands on deck kind of a thing yeah or, or whatnot and it was because i think um the news cycle had been fast and it had been hard to understand it and it had been uh, you know, it's a lot of financial terms, a lot of uncertainty, and the speech uh, in itself didn't really explain anything. It just gave sort of this extended sense of doom, yeah, which wasn't really helpful at that point. I don't think so. Nor wrong, though. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, uh, definitely gave a sense that, that nobody knew what was going on. I mean, my grandmother came down and said, so how do you think it did? Because she was, was it conservative? And she was just wondering about how his, uh, uh, how, how he <laughs> had a how, how that perception was. Yeah. And everyone else was thinking, oh my God, I, I'm going to lose my job. And everyone had, was in debt by then, all institutions, all, all companies and most individuals had been buying big houses and big cars with uh, something called bread basket loans, which was a combination of yen and, and euro and foreign currency. Yeah, yeah, and then the the corona had been plummeting the following month, and, yeah. and everybody was sort of like thinking, like, how am I going to pay off that loan the next? Yeah, by the end of next month, because like you know, it's 
no three times or whatever it was big, exactly like a month because, ago. Because if you're loan, if you're if your loans are in foreign currency and the, and the currency your and currency, the currency yeah, yeah, then it's going to be twice as much, uh, which is what happened to a lot of people. Um, not to us because we've never owned anything, but no, I mean when I when I was like uh, like selfishly, I was thinking when I looked at those those dudes, those guys coming out of the bank, like absolutely devastated. I thought like, okay, I guess these guys kind of like had a really linear career. They went to like college, then they went to like university, they studied finance, business, whatever, went to work for the bank, got a high paycheck, got mortgages, you know, everything pretty geared up. And uh, I had been running a, a magazine with you and had absolutely no money to show for. Yeah. So I, you know, if you don't have anything, you can't lose anything. So it was more like uncertainty rather than immediate lack of, or immediate sort of um, financial worries that, that I, I was experiencing. Yeah, uh, but even if uh, I didn't lose anything in, in financial terms, it was still just worrying. I mean, what, yes, the the boom was obviously over, but, you know, would Iceland be plunged back into a Great Depression? You know, what would the future be like? I mean, we had no idea. We had no idea, and... Um, they're like very early on, they were like we we had problems in in terms of like basic imports because we like the state or you know companies had difficulties of acquiring foreign currency yeah. immediately. So just importing coffee became an issue, etc. Yeah. So uh, and everything, of course, is twice as expensive because the <laughs> apart from that, but it was just basically they it was hard to. Uh, import basic foodstuffs and things we've always needed. Yeah. So that was one of those sort of things that were floating around in the news cycle that, you know, we can't import coffee or whatever it was. And you go like, okay, what the fuck? Yeah. At the same time, I remember like during that week, um, there was some random person from, from the US, some former like financial player at Wall Street or something that I met at one of these cafes downtown because we had a mutual acquaintance or something. And in, he told me, like, I've been looking at the numbers. This looks horrible. There's not going to be, like, food or housing here. You're going to, like, do, do you want to buy some dollars or something? And I was like, it's, it's, that's not how it's going to go down here. It's, we're not going to end up on the street. That's not going to happen. Like, I, I wasn't, like, I kind of felt like when it came to, like, immediate needs, I wasn't really worried about those. No, but I think a lot of people were because of the uncertainty. And, and of course, the uncertainty then then became global, but it, it sort of happened here first. Iceland was called the canary in the coal mine. You know, yeah. first Iceland will die and then the rest of the economy. And I think also because abject poverty in Iceland is maybe not within living memory, but fairly recent, as we talked about last episode a bit, that in the 30s it was a very severe depression. There were import controls. And it was only really in the later 80s and 90s that these were lifted and you started to be able to buy all these things in Iceland that you hadn't been able to buy before. Yeah, it was only like, um, it took the EEA, as it's called, European yeah. Economic Association, sort of like like halfway house of EU yeah. membership that we entered into in 94. For these, like for the, yeah, for, for the sort of... Um, I don't know, like <laughs> for uh, for consumerism to really start in Iceland. Yeah. Up until that point, you could get like two brands of cigarettes and 
and you couldn't buy Pepsi or whatever. You know, it was just it was weird. You could you couldn't get Marlboros. You could only buy Winstons. Yeah, there was a very strict system of who could import what. Usually, somebody associated with the government would get exclusive rights to import this one product. Uh, it was all done partly, though, to I think to to help smaller business owners. So there were a lot of people who just had their own shops and you know essentially sold one product or so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and going abroad was kind of a big deal, and you could only exchange a certain amount of currency. And these are things that we remember because they they were still going on until the yeah. early nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to like a like you, there was uh, a specific amount you could actually buy as foreign currency when yeah. you went abroad, and you had to do it before you left. Uh, and if you went abroad, you had to buy a present for everyone you knew because you were going abroad. Yeah, and you had to buy M&Ms on the way back because they were only sold at the uh, <laughs> the airport. Yeah. No M&Ms in the sh- shops. So if we, I mean, Iceland got started to get rich after, after during and after World War II, but this is on another level now. It's uh, the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So the left is in complete disarray. They don't know what's going on. And they're sort of apologizing, some of them, for having at some point supported the Soviet Union and uh, and the conservatives, which are the dominant party, they take sort of a hard right turn and they become very sort of market libertarian. Yeah, um, and this only happened in, uh, I want to say, nine, after like 1991. Yeah, it begins in 1991 when we have a new prime minister... Called Davidson. Called Davidson. Previously mayor of Reykjavik, he actually became first known in Iceland for for acting in a, a play as the mad tyrant Peter Ubu, <laughs> the surrealist. And, and during play. the economic collapse, he was the uh, head of the central bank. Yeah. So uh, it, it I mean, he's he sort of bookends this period because he's not. Um, most leaders of the Conservative Party have been to the manner. Born, they're sort of from notable families. He is not. He is the son of a single mother from Selfos. And he sort of works his way up through considerable charisma. But he also has to have a new idea why everyone should vote for him. And his new idea, which he has, of course, imported, is this idea that we should open up. We should liberalize everything. We should sell all government property, essentially. Yeah, and I guess the opening up part... uh it was kind of due. In some, in way, way, in some yeah. ways it was, because the old system was very stagnant, so there was need for change. But, the, the you know... S- the selling everything off part was kind of just like... It wasn't at all a new idea. It was just uh, Reaganism or Thatcherism or whatever, just yes, 10 years later. Exactly. But that's how things usually happen in Iceland. Yeah, years. 10 years later. Like, Except uh, during the collapse, when we were a month ahead. But <laughs> Yeah, finally. <laughs> by that time, we had caught up. Finally winning. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... It's, uh, no, because, like, I guess a little bit to, like, reiterate. So what happened in October is, like, Iceland had a bunch of banks, but three of them were the biggest ones. They were, like, eight, the 85% of the of the banking market in Iceland. They were called Glitnir, they were called Landsbankin and Kupting, and they all went bust within, like, two weeks. Mm-hmm. And what had happened is, like, those banks, like, one of them was, like, had been privately owned since, like, the very late 90s. Uh, Island Bank or Glitnir. Mm. The other two had been state banks, and they were privatized in two thousand and two and three. Yeah, and that, that's when the the boom really starts to kick off. This has been sort of still building up through the nineties. Yeah, uh, 
and Davi Otson gets reelected again and again, sometimes changing coalition partners. Uh, and this whole, this, uh, uh, the, the privatization of the banks begins in 1999 and it's happened in stages. Mm-hmm. It's completed about 2003 mm-hmm. in terms of the elections that year. And as we now know, or maybe should have known at the time, is that the idea for privatizing the banks was to both uh, have uh, many people owning a share, to have a sort of yeah, open... Yeah open auction and to get professionals from from Scandinavia from abroad and 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 top investors uh and this was they had a, a committee to oversee this but eventually David Olson decided no forget about that I'll just give it to to my friends yeah and yeah. the head of the committee resigned and said I've never seen anything like this uh, so that's I think part of it, if you're trying to find the root cause for the collapse, it might be here. Not just in the fact that the banks are privatized, but in how it happens, and they're given to certain individuals. No, but uh, be- before like going into the whole, you know, the, these like ten or fifteen years of politics before the collapse, just to again sort of uh, explain the economic collapse. So these three banks went bust, but the Whereas, like you know, in the United States or in the UK or in in mainland Europe, the states were uh, able to, the individual states or central banks were able to sort of bail out banks. We were unable to do so because the during those four or five years of privately run banks, they had managed to uh, become so big and so thoroughly in debt. That their size was about what is it like eight or ten times yeah. the uh, GDP the, of Iceland? Yeah, that's the figure. So um, it turned out that this idea of the central bank working as sort of like a bailout for a, for the banking system yeah. didn't work out in Iceland because they were just too big yeah. and nobody would nobody would lend the Icelandic state or the central bank the money to do the bailout because it would you know it just didn't add up yeah so they were too big to bail basically yeah, yeah. um so that that's kind of why we had the, the in, a, in a way that's one of the reasons for the for the collapse but anyway uh, this sort of goes back to the 90s again because yeah. the uh icelanders they the the they talk about joining the european union as mm-hmm. uh New country, uh, which some countries at that time do, Sweden, Finland, Austria, uh, they vote on joining the EU. We never vote, but instead the, the government, but I also decides that we will take this in-between agreement, which is the European Economic Area, mm-hmm. which gives us some of the rights, but essentially it means that Icelanders can now trade everywhere. Iceland is open for business, but without really any sort of EU supervision. So some people see this as a poisoned cocktail where, you know, we are let loose, but we have no restraints and, and no one to turn to eventually, but our own government, which in, in the event is uh, is unable to, practically unable to, to, to um, save the banks. When so, yeah, so we're also like let loose in, uh, in business and finance where we hadn't really ever been let loose before. No, we we go from we had, very strict uh, controls and everything to, to, to just gung ho cowboy yeah, yeah. Uh, capitalism. Yeah, and everyone is super excited about this. That wasn't just reelected again and again. And th- this is at the time when 
we're coming of age and we remember, I think, the early part of the century, there is a lot of excitement in the air. And not just because everyone wants to be rich, although that too, but also because... You know, everyone wants to do something. It's sort of a new world opening up. And and when we start the grapevine in 2003, I think that's part of the optimism. It's, yeah, it's of part the, of the optimism. There is like of the boom years. All these sort of like this sort of restricted, restrictive um, society we lived in is sort of like the, the wheel. I'm not going to say the wheels are coming off, but sort of the restrictions are sort of diminishing. Yeah. And you're starting to be able to do things you couldn't do before. Yeah. Which is. Uh, obviously can be a very positive thing yeah the grapevine <laughs> and <laughs> and can have negative uh connotations too like yeah. a bank collapse yeah yeah when i came home from studying in belfast in in 2003 i felt you know this is sort of a new country i'm entering that there's a thriving poetry scene and and there you know so publishers and and there's music and there's a lot there's a lot going on there and uh yeah the Björk and, and Seurus. Björk in the early 90s, the Seuros in the late, late yeah. 90s, and everything and seemed it, possible. There's a sense of Iceland also becoming part of the world in a way that it had never completely been before. Oh, yeah, yeah. We got a second airline. Yeah. And we could actually get to, to, to like, a different country without, like, paying a month's salary for a flight ticket. Yeah. It was very, sort of, liberating. There was airwaves. Also, it's a music festival starting with the film festival, and so there's a lot going on. And, and I think... You know, it's hard now to get into that mindset. You a new daily paper free? Remember that? Yeah, Fretablad, which is sort of supposed to be new and free media, but very soon got well went bankrupt and then got gobbled up by one of the leading oligarchs. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So this also gave us maybe an illusion of freedom, but actually the information we got was being Doctor. somewhat somewhat controlled. Yeah. Yes. Um, and in fact, the two leading papers were Fretablad and Morgenblad in a time when papers still mattered. Um, yeah, yeah, time is definitely coming back. Yeah. Please <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, subscribe to the Rick Every Great <laughs> For free, almost. Almost. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, but the two sides, they were actually, these two papers were competing with each other also. Politically, one of them connected to the Independence Party, or the other one to some of the leading oligarchs, yeah. uh, and they were just competing about who could offer more economic liberalism. So that was the only game in town. You had sort of had to believe in it, and if you weren't, you were considered very strange. Yeah, very, uh, you know, very much a dinosaur. Yeah, because this was the future, and it was the only path to the future. And and if you were against the future then you know yeah i mean this is also like the era of like uh new labor pluralism yeah like less affair shit yeah even like you know social democrats that also become sort of venture capitalists exactly uh proper like left parties had sort of just become almost like um uh, just uh, almost like sort of solidified solidified sort of relics from the past yeah, it was all. It was all just like you know. The, the solution is going to be capitalistic, one way or the other. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. That way, it was you know still somewhat ideology is just not important anymore. Yeah, it doesn't have any meaning. It's all. Uh, no, I'm just getting depressed. <laughs> <laughs> in a way, I mean, as, as crazy as it was, it, it almost makes me sad today because in those 
days, people still believed in the future being better than Oh, the yeah. I remember that, too. <laughs> um, we haven't really had that since. No, everyone's convinced that everything is going to hell and the future's going to be yeah, this worse. Yeah, this, this is why we kept keep being fat, like, nostalgic TV series. Because yeah. it's, it's not that we like necessarily watching, uh, you know, things about uh, something happening in the past. We, we I think we're missing the sense of the shows that have people li- like living in past eras of history who were themselves optimistic about the future. Yeah. So I, I think, think it's so. the optimism yeah. about the future that we actually miss, not yeah. the plot of the TV series. Yeah. It's just this sense of, of you know, everything is possible that is just gone now. Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting point that we're nostalgic for optimism about the future. Yeah, which we don't we, have anymore. No, but we're living in, in their future in some ways. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean... That that part we miss, but it also, I mean, but it also was kind of crazy in the fact that now everyone was rich or at least pretended to be. Yeah, and you could get. Uh, but it was all on credit. That's the thing. It was all on credit because, yeah. I uh, mean, in the same way that the the American middle class in the nineties was like still living sort of a, a proper American middle class life, but on credit, yeah. not on on their pay anymore. Yeah. We were sort of like having a, a boom, uh, all of us, but all on credit. Yeah. And it, I think, uh, one of those things that made this boom into bust thing even more, well, bigger than it had to be was the fact that in 2004, the one of the political parties, the Progressive Party, got voted into, kind of into office again, based on uh, their promise to allow people to take up to 90% housing loans. Yeah. That, would you remember that? Yeah. Everybody, everybody was able to get, to get a loan for a house. Even me. Yeah. I, I hardly had an income. And this draw up housing prices. Who would have guessed? Who would have guessed that it just completely like blew the market? And it's and the Icelandic housing market has never like made any sense ever since. No, yeah, yeah. It was the elections of two thousand three, and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It came into effect in two thousand four. Sorry. Yeah, and uh, and there was this phrase that became notorious that you know we all want to make money during the day and barbecue in the evening <laughs> which actually sounds cooler in Icelandic yeah yeah it has a yeah it's more of a ring and I think in um, 2006 maybe early 2006 the mood changed a little bit from the sort of boundless optimism to a little bit of fear I think there was a bit of a like a what is it called the mini crisis of the summer of two thousand six. Yeah, it was some early. some um, the banks were having some problems financing themselves. Yeah, and and there was and a lot of some people were saying you know hey maybe we should just chill a bit. This is all going a little bit too far. Yeah, yeah. And as we learned later, the banks were actually buying shares in each other, so they they were driving their own growth basically by buying shares in each other, which there was you know no foundation for. Yeah, that's a part of what we learned at the collapse that everything was intertwined financially, and then when it started falling, everything fell. Yeah, yeah, because uh, it was all linked up. Yeah, like dominoes. Exactly. So if we want to sort of prevent the collapse this is maybe maybe we should go back to the 90s if uh, maybe we should have changed the privatization maybe we should have entered the eu maybe we should have done this and that but this is probably the last chance to when uh, it's obvious that the banking system is growing too big and the banks are running out of money yeah i mean that's a that's a bit of a warning sign <laughs> <laughs> and so what do the banks do 
Well, Lance Bunkin opened up the iSave account, which... Um, and Koepling uh, opened up the Edge account. Yeah. Which were at least, like, so these things, these were like, they opened sort of like internet banks. So yeah. Like, um, so uh, it's savings accounts. Exactly. In the UK and in the Netherlands, I think. Yeah. And even to some extent, I think Edge was opened in Sweden and some other places. Yeah, and it never took up to the same extent that no, because no. It, it was later. But but I say, which was I think depositors in, in Britain especially, also in the Netherlands, to deposit their savings mm-hmm. into these Icelandic accounts, and they would get huge interest. Yeah, and so this was seen as a genius move. The money was flowing in again. The problem was solved for the time being. Yeah, and and but because all the naysayers, the people who were saying, you know, maybe you should be careful, they had been proved wrong. It sort of switched off any remaining criticism. Yeah, I, I remember like, like being like, you know, publishing a, a magazine. We had been thoroughly on the side of being sort of pessimistic. Uh, we'd been pessimistic about the privatization, I think. We'd been pessimistic about uh, the uh, these 90% loans and about the boom in general, and uh, also the building of the Karanuka Dam, about which, the, yeah, uh, which which in, is another thing that fueled sort of this this whole uh, economic boom. Yeah, because and just at the time when the economy is overheating, we, the, the government, government decided to heat it up some more. Yeah, by having this major construction of a big dam, uh, destroying a big part of the highlands in order to manufacture aluminum. Yeah, electricity for aluminum uh, to create a few jobs. Yeah, yeah. in the east. Which uh, then turned out people didn't really necessarily want. No, but uh, so it's it's you know I remember like this part where you go like you know you've been going like it's been years and we had been very negative and then I think finally in the summer of two thousand and eight we actually wrote something positive <laughs> about the whole thing and then just three months later everything was over. Yeah, and I was like, oh fuck, we should have <laughs> we should have stayed like we should have hung on here. Yeah, we, one we just once we gave into the whole. Th- hype and and it was just yeah anyway but it was a hype and people were people gave in eventually the naysayers basically just like five years into it everybody had given up on on naysaying yeah i mean this was just it was like yeah i don't get it but it works i guess (laughs) yeah and and everyone had been proven wrong and that had had questions or or seemed to have been there was another election in 2007 where the conservative party of davidson changed their coalition partners they now got in the social democrats yeah but they were just like i guess blair's new labor they were more there to give a human face to this rampant capitalism (laughs) uh yeah very very blair Blair, blairites i guess they're blairites uh like i mean like had nothing really to do with any like the social part of the name doesn't really no, Makes sense it, at that point. No, it would just seem as old-fashioned, and and the only way for them to win elections was to, or to party government was to adapt the the one program that everyone had to to subscribe to. Um, and so this is also, I guess, another story about how the Progressive Party in Iceland, which I'm sure few of our listeners are familiar with, is somehow just able to dodge every bullet. Yeah, they, simply they were, not being in government when the whole thing goes bust. They were they were were lucky then, but but because now three out of the four main parties had been in government during this boom time, they were all seen as culpable. So, because what happened when everything collapsed 
economically as a people sort of lost faith in everything. They lost faith in the media, they lost faith in the political party. Uh, and already in, in the autumn of 2008, people started saying, oh, that's so 2007 when <laughs> someone I know, bought something new or a yeah. fast screen TV was, I guess, the, the main symbol of the boom years. Yeah, yeah. We went from boxes to flats in, in those four or five years. And everybody had one. Yeah. I mean, it's normal now, but it was... I, also. I didn't have one. <laughs> I, neither, neither did I, but... <laughs> we had shitty jobs. Yeah. We were... We were journalists. I was actually uh, in... Well, I was a freelance journalist, and of course, all work had started to dry up here, which was the beginning of the crisis of Icelandic media, but because there was so much focus on... Uh, on Iceland abroad for a while. Now all eyes were on us. I started writing uh, new stories for Associated Press and for The Guardian. Um, and as the Icelandic chrono was collapsing, getting paid from abroad, even though it wasn't very much, was proportionately more. <laughs> it was interesting. So so that's what I did during the collapse. I just I was going, following it anyway. I was going to all the... There were me weekly meetings where the government would present you know, what was trying to present what was going on to a, a live audience and a TV audience. For the first time ever, I remember the prime minister having a bodyguard next to him, which had never happened before. No, uh, I, you know, the, well, the blood pressure, the blood was up. Yeah, because every, was... everyone felt like they had been cheated and there was a lot of anger. And, too. and this is not just, you know, young up-and-coming bankers who were worried that they lost everything. Everybody worried that they lost everything. Yeah, but everybody felt very betrayed. Yeah. Um, and and of, of course, it was always someone else's fault. People didn't look at the fact that they had taken loans and that they had voted for these people. But that was also what they were being told to do. So, you know, what? what yeah. why not? Everybody else was doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, um, it, you, you can very easily sort of blame government policy for a lot of things that happened. So people obviously lost faith in politics. Mm-hmm. And they felt like the politicians that had sold them these ideas yeah. were to be blamed. Yeah. Along with more or less everybody who worked in a bank. Yeah. Yeah. I but mean, it's, it's understandable. It is. But because the spirit sort of permeated all of society, it's almost hard to find whom not to blame. Even most of the artists, they were sort of in on it they were in commercials for banks or if not then at least they were not criticizing because you know they there was this uh, crude element of, of sort of arty people who just sort of said to stay away from everything but not but not, not criticizing yeah. yeah because this was something that the normal people couldn't understand anyway we were sort of i think a lot of people believed that these bankers actually knew what they were doing and that they were some sort of you know, that they were some sort of geniuses, frankly. Who, uh, Genies. Yeah, and they were also being asked on advice on everything else. Um, yeah, 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 I mean, uh, yeah, a logical fallacy there, but yeah. Yeah, they, they had some sort of connection to almost to some higher power. They had some sort of deeper insight. and uh, it's, it's incredible, actually, to go back and look at, like, the, uh, not the news stories necessarily, but sort of like the, the other sort of magazine or, or 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 you know lighter stuff written uh, during those years and interviews with and and articles about the the bankers. Yeah, it's very like um, 
It's very glamorous, very positive. Yeah. There is no, nobody's, very few people were saying, except for maybe the grapevine, anything really that negative. No, and and Kudene Tiahao, who was um, my history teacher and now president, yeah, he was studying in Britain at the time, and he was asked, uh, so what was the difference between discourse in, in England and Iceland? And he said, I mean, a lot of it's the same, but it, if you look at the glossy papers in England, there will be interviews with rock stars and TV stars and, and models and whatnot, but in Iceland, there would only be bankers or <laughs> businessmen who were sort of, you know, these were the only people that everyone was supposed to look up to and uh, admire. Yeah. <laughs> why, why interview Björk if you can talk to uh, one of the heads of the Exactly. Bank? What does Björk know? Does she, you know, why, what can she, what can she do for my portfolio? Nothing, nothing. Yeah, she's just talking about a nature and, and else and stuff. So. But yeah, I mean, it happened. And as we just said, I mean, uh, this coalition that had been presiding over the government when when the collapse happened, they, they the coalition collapsed in January following a um, series of, pro of protests. Yeah, there was had been this whole build-up through the autumn because nobody knew what to do. So one of the things they started doing was to meet every Saturday and yeah. outside the parliament building. Have and, speeches. And, and protest. And interestingly enough, one of the organizers was Hörður Torvason, who had previously been one of the first openly gay people in Iceland, so he was sort of used to organizing and, and, and fighting for his rights. Um, and yeah, this was building up. And what finally, I think, led it to erupt was that during this moment of crisis, the worst crisis for 80 years or something in the, in the country's history, uh, all, the, all the members of parliament took a long Christmas vacation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were pretty tired at that point. They were, but... Uh, it's been, been a rough fall. Yeah, but people... But, you know... But yeah, but people, people weren't really... They weren't really feeling for them in a sense that they felt like they needed the vacation. No. And so um, there was needed to be some rallying point. So when uh, Parliament was set again on the 20th of January 2009... That's just when things erupted and people surrounded the parliament building for that whole day. And um, I remember, I think that was the time when I really felt most afraid. I mean, I was just, you had no idea what would happen next if society was sort of coming around at this, uh, falling apart at the seams. And I was, you know, completely in favor of the protest, but I was also, you know, worried, you know, what, what... Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I think that makes sense to me. I think everybody at that point felt like there should be a change, and that you know this this government should be ousted because they had sort of presided over the whole mess. But at the same time, um, this felt like a tinderbox that just could go off into a violent shitstorm. Yeah, and nobody wants that. No, but it very easily could have, and yeah. I, I think. Um, well, on the, on the one hand, the police actually did rather a good job. There was, well, actually during that day on the 20th of January, as evening came and people started to get tired and wouldn't go home, some people sort of, uh, ran after the prime minister's car as he was trying to leave and the police hit someone and broke his arm. And that went, got everyone to go out again and protest. And this continued throughout the week. 
But mainly the police would just stand there with their batons and their shields and helmets. And do nothing. Yeah, well, people take, take the beating. Well, well, not beating, but people were pelting them yeah. with the eggs and and steer and yogurt and milk and everything, just throwing at them, and they just stood there and took it. Um, if they had reacted differently, I think you know there would have been violence that could very quickly have escalated. Yeah, I think the head of police then was uh, a man from the West Manals called Gerion. Wasn't, uh, wasn't it? He, was, he wasn't the head of the. But he was. He was there, right? Yeah, he was. He was there. He wasn't from the entire police. He was. was uh, but he was. He was uh, one of the chief officers. He was like this gigantic, a giant of a man. Yeah. Who, uh, I think, if I remember this correctly, one of the things he did to kind of de-escalate, which I thought was very cool, actually, but he kind of walked around the protesters and offered them like some snuff and talked mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. Kind of like to something he would do like. If you were a police, you know, officer and and sort of like, uh, you know, uh, you know, and like um, a attending town. a like attending a well, like something that would be like could escalate into a drunken brawl in a small town, yeah. And you kind of just cool everybody down by being human, and it worked. Yeah, and I felt um, sometimes I heard policemen debating with young anarchists about the merits of democracy and i was that's i would have like loved to see that <laughs> yeah and i was kind of happy to hear them um uh, you know saying and then if there's new government we'll protect them as well so they, they really seem to believe in democracy and there was there was i mean i was usually there with the protesters even in my capacity as a, as a journalist and there was a time when people went into the central bank and took it over and they were surrounded by police inside. And then they made a deal that they would leave if the police would leave. The police left first and then the protesters. So there was negotiation and mutual respect. And it did happen sometimes that police did go a bit far. They they used pepper spray kind of lot, which they had very rarely done before. Yeah, It was the first time since 1949, since the NATO protest, that they used uh, tear gas. Yeah. Um, so but things would happen. When... Um, and by the end of this week, the um, Reykjavik police were exhausted. They got support from police from other towns. And, and they were so exhausted from standing there and being pelted by eggs all day that they really couldn't take it anymore. And so the protesters with orange armbands took over their jobs and sort of stood watch in front of the parliament building to protect the building while the police went home so i think that was a unique moment that we maybe too easily forget because things could have gone very differently i think yeah and and thank god they didn't yeah but uh well the the government imploded kind of yeah it was um maybe the good thing about having the social democrats there was that there were people within their ranks who were protesting uh the social democrats in Reykjavik said that you know we should uh, we should leave government. And at the end of this week of pots and pans, and it's called the pots and pans revolution, obviously, because people started banging on pots and pans, which I think now it's become, I mean, the Spanish started doing it soon afterwards, but mm. I think now it's come a, a universal think, thing almost. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I think it was one of, the, one of the first people to do that. Um, yeah, the, the government collapsed. A new left-wing government took over a pure left-wing government of the Social Democrats and the Left Greens, which are the two left parties, which had never happened before. And a minority at that. It was a minority government, yeah, when the when the 
Jag kan klara. David Watson by now was central bank manager. The protest moved outside the central bank in fact, but he was also fired from there. So yeah. The new central bank director. And you know, so that's it begins and ends with David Watson. Uh, Time magazine called him one of the 25 architects of the economic collapse in the world along with Bill Clinton, along with George W. Bush, Alan Greenspan, and these big yeah, names. But yeah. He was the only Icelander on the list, which is kind of impressive in a way. I think the, the collapse of Cape Think Bank was, at the time, and maybe still is, the fifth biggest bankruptcy in, in world history. Well, yeah, it's definitely uh, one of our claims to fame. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Best at bankruptcies. <laughs> From best at banking to best at bankruptcies. Um, yeah, well, he got a he got a nice job at the end. He's now he's been running a he's been editing the only remaining newspaper in Iceland. Yeah, ever since. yeah, that was that a was great renown. It was a shame because Morgenblatt was, was it was always conservative, but it was Iceland's oldest, most established paper, still running. And then they gave him the job where he's been uh, sort of rewriting history ever since. Um, yeah, but uh, uh, like so, I mean, this is this is what happened. There was a new government, and there were new elections, and we had the IMF came in. We don't, we shouldn't forget about that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, uh, and basically dictated the economic policy of the country for the next few years. Yeah, that. some people worried about that, but it did seem to go quite well. The the left wing government was elected in those elections that were held in 2009. Mm -hmm. Their job was basically to try to clean up the economy uh, as Great. best they could. Yeah, it's uh, I, like I I also love cleaning up after after parties I didn't throw. <laughs> <laughs> which has sort of been their role, but <laughs> the left at the time which you know, they seemed as shocked as everyone else. Uh, this uh, so instead of saying we told you so or you know this is what we should have done this is what we could do they they seem to have no particular ideas in general no i mean nobody's had uh, has anybody had any solid political ideas for the past 30 years anyway no, no it's it I seems mean, that it's just more of the same yeah in 2008 it seemed like you would uh, think that you know the left would say oh no this wasn't the right way to do it this is what you did instead the major movements have been things like, you know, the Tea Party and Trump, and it's all very negative. It's it's yeah, angry it's, and it's opposed to, and but, it's all, but it's completely void of new ideas. Yeah, it's also like uh, some economists thought, like maybe this, maybe we'll now have Keynesianism again, but instead we just went for uh, uh, austerity, more or less. Yeah. So, uh, like, not only us, so more or less everybody else. Yeah, that was uh, that was what happened in Europe largely. It was Germans, they don't like to spend money, they like to save, and, and they sort of opposed it. But here, it's not quite what happened. Um, for a couple of years, things sort of uh, looked scary, but also in a way hopeful because, you know, I generally believed for a while that a new and, and slightly more sane society would come out of this. We've learned, ah, ah, we've learned ah, our ah, lesson. Ah, ah. <laughs> Sorry. And, uh, and then everything changed because of a volcano. Yeah. 2010. The, uh, yeah. The eruption. Probably. Again, Iceland was in all the news. Yeah. For something else now. For something else, for a volcano. Well, actually, like, funny, like, let, let's put it like, there's a couple of things. First of all, uh, 
there was like this feeling that we really had to like understand what happened mm. and to um to learn what would happen we would need to investigate it so we set up a committee to investigate what what the created the collapse yes and we're actually looking at like behind you here in the studio there's like a Oh. It's like a it's like a foot of paper there. It's called the it's the it's the committee's report yeah. on the collapse, and it was written in two thousand nine and ten. And everybody waited for this with great anticipation because yeah. this was gonna clear everything up in a way. I mean, subsequently there were gonna be a lot of like criminal charges pressed and stuff like that, and that was yeah. going on at the same time. But we waited for this, and and this was gonna be like our we're gonna use this sort of as a green paper or a guidance to like show us what to do in the future yeah and i remember they they had the press conference the 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 the, um the report was out yeah and then just it felt like three days later the volcano erupted and nobody gave a shit about the report anymore yeah and it's since been completely forgotten it seems yeah and and obviously the the volcano that that uh it stopped air traffic in in europe for a for a little while got us on the news and we can kind of draw a straight line between that eruption and then the massive tourist boom that followed. Yeah, it was great free advertising and it showed Iceland again as this wild, untamed country. Yeah, and, and, not, can, a, and not a failed economy. Yeah, and even then the, the, the failed bankers started just showing how wild and the Icelanders are. They're not, you know, entirely civilized. They yeah, believe in yeah. elves and they go out like Vikings and, uh, and take over stuff and, and ruin it. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, what can they do when they live next to a live volcano? <laughs> and I guess to an extent, like, we went... Uh, like long story short we kind of went from like like you know this happened there was trauma there was confusion and then there just a new thing arrived the tourist boom yeah. and we kind of just kind of forget about it kind of didn't like yeah, yeah. and i kind of you know but uh I, there's a few like just sort of um anecdotal things that i wanted to like add to this thing cuz when the collapse happened First of all, like the corona completely plummeted and mm-hmm. became, like for all sense and intents and purposes, useless mm-hmm. and worthless. But people were still like there were like people living abroad who were like studying something at some universities who who had their university loans in Icelandic kroner. There were just people traveling at the time, like with Icelandic debit cards or credit cards. And you would even like you know maybe you had planned a travel like I did, and and I was in Denmark during Christmas in 2008. Mm-hmm. And it was like, uh, it, it was, it, there were actually practical problems that you hadn't had ever before, mm-hmm. which is you, you were you were abroad and you kind of couldn't pay for anything. Mm-hmm. And like, it was worse if you lived abroad. And you, uh, like I, I heard of some like, um, people who were like studying in the, you know, Belgium or Netherlands or something, and they actually literally couldn't get money to buy food. For like mm-hmm. for weeks on end, mm-hmm. and I just remember like trying to have a hamburger and a beer in Copenhagen, and realizing it was like it was something uh, akin to like fifteen or twenty thousand kroner or something ridiculous. Like, yeah, like just like it was like it was like dollars uh, or something, like eight times what it should be or something. Yeah. And I also remember like spending like a, a hungover time 
at the Cartimon Oslo airport, like not being able to actually afford buying anything to eat in my no. during my hangover. So there were like stuff like that that kind of went down. Yeah, but although that didn't last very long. And no, no, it was just brief, brief moment. Of time. And frankly, I was studying in Finland already in, in the beginning of 2001 when the krona depreciated by about a third. So this was of a different scale, but the krona fluctuates frequently. Yeah, yeah. And it also happened to me again when I was trying to do a PhD in 2000. Uh, 18 when wow air <laughs> collapsed and the corona went down again and suddenly i couldn't pay my tuition because that had gone up by a third relative to the corona yeah. so yeah. yeah i guess i guess we're kind of used to it in a way i mean you can see like with the the inflation following the invasion of, of the ukraine in like sweden everything kind of went everything panicked whereas yeah. like we had a similar amount of inflation going on here for actually a homemade reason instead of like an energy crisis reason. Yeah, because we have... And, and we, we I mean, we're unhappy about it, but it didn't really ruffle our feathers that much because it's always happening. Yeah, we're used to, to getting ourselves into trouble and getting out of it again, which actually we saw here, you know, from Iceland recovered quickly, uh, partly because of mass tourism, but partly also because it is all hands on deck. Because people are used to, when things go badly, they might take a worse job. They might go back to school. And there's no shame in taking a worse job. It's only a shameful to not take a job. <laughs> yeah. So so this is, I mean, the Iceland economy has been having bang, you know, busts and booms throughout the 20th century and to today. But the, I mean, this one was just greater but i at the time it looked like something that would change everything now it's sort of another one of these so but uh but before like before we kind of start uh going a little more into depth depth about like whether or not this collapse could have been uh prevented mm. uh by different policies or whatever we, we've talked about a few of them before but uh you know um you remember the the internet meme that uh Everybody should do like Iceland and 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 jail all the bankers. Yeah, um, which is, I mean, yeah. What what did we learn from from the outside? Iceland went from being the canary on the coal mine yeah. to suddenly being this shining light as to how you should tackle economic collapses and and everyone should you know crowdsource their constitutions, yeah. and jail their <laughs> bankers like Iceland, which is at best partially true. Um, yeah, we jailed some bankers. The, the constitution, we did actually write a new constitution, which was uh, set up by, uh, we, uh, there was uh, 60 people elected uh, to write a constitution, but then the new constitution was never, was put to the vote, the a majority of people who did vote, which weren't very many, did vote for it, yeah. but it's never been passed, so that... Yeah, it's still, it's just, it's in the bin somewhere now. Yeah, so people uh, in the outside world maybe remember hearing something about the new Icelandic constitution, which was sort of written by the the people in some way, but never passed. And the jailing of the bankers is more, it's more ambiguous. Yeah. Because a lot of them have served time. You know, that's that's a fact. Yeah. Um, You know, it's... um, the question is like whether or not whether or not their practices were any worse than any in any other banks in in the Western world at the same time. Yeah, if you because like in many cases those those things were simply not looked into in in other countries. Yeah, and maybe they weren't, but uh, they had definitely been breaking laws. Um, and well. 
it took forever to to prosecute and yeah i think i i feel personally and we talked about this before like somewhere along the way you kind of just lost the thread there you when, when finally somebody got sentenced you kind of forgot what the whole thing was about yeah like why specifically they actually got jail time yeah For what part of the 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 uh events that led to the collapse they were actually being prosecuted for it all got muddled up but yeah some some people did serve Sometime. I think Iceland probably did better here than most other countries, but still not as good as is assumed. Um, no, no, no. I think it's it, just like with the crowdsourced constitution, it's it's not anywhere close to what is assumed. I mean, nobody, I, I mean, probably some people have a bit of a completely tainted, what is the Reputation. Word? Reputation, sorry. And, and you know, came out like without any money. But most of these people kind of just brushed it off and had money lying around somewhere and got back into the tourist business or whatever. And, and it didn't really... Or got back into doing something more similar to what they were doing yeah, before. Yeah, it didn't really ruffle their feathers that much. No. And now there's sort of a new a new class of, of oligarchs who all think, own things like the Blue Lagoon and they... And, you know, that's passing into a few hands and so it's the tourism. Yeah, so, it's similar in a way. Yeah, so I think that the the need people had for justice and for change that passed in about four years, five years, Partially because the economy actually started going well again yeah. thanks to, to tourism, so that problem <laughs> solved itself nicely. Uh, one Have thing you that, ever heard about uh, well-fed peasants uh, creating an uprising? Nope. No, but <laughs> it's, it's often disgruntled middle-class people yeah, anyway. I know, I know, I'm kidding. Um, the, the, the one thing that we don't want to talk about, because it's, it's kind of the, the, the cliché, Boring conversation in, in Iceland still is is ice safe, which was all oh. everyone talked about for for four years, and nobody I mean, wants. To. I'm, I wrote like a BA thesis on ISIS. No, ISIS. Sorry, <laughs> ISIS. Safe. Safe. Is our ISIS? Oh shit. Sorry. Uh, and even I have no I, I no clue how that went. I mean, it, it was it was such. I mean, it it, com- it dictated the all, the results of the 2013 elections. Yeah, because what happened was that. When the uh, iSave account had been opened, they had been somewhat criticized by the left. And uh, now the government was seen as responsible for these ac- accounts and for these deposits that British and, and Dutch people had made. And that the Icelandic government should pay them back. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was the government of those countries that paid them back, but then Iceland should reimburse the governments. Yeah. Trying to make it simple. And um, <laughs> But then... Uh, this became a big deal to people because many said, we don't want to pay for the debt of the bankers. True. A- and it was used by the n- now disgraced conservatives and progressive to beat the government with, the new government, the left-wing government, to say, you know, you shouldn't be paying these uh, these debts that were actually created on our watch. But, but And, and they, they managed to, to get it into a referendum. Yeah, which which the the let's not pay side won. Yeah, which resulted in a court case in the EFTA court. Yeah, which is like a this EEA thing, like halfway house EU thing. Yeah, which we somehow won. 
Yeah. So, like, so we didn't have to pay. No. Which resulted in the this sort of like uh, yeah the the progressives and the and the uh, independence party sort of regaining some momentum because they had been in their words right there. Yeah, even then, though, then, even then, though then, they had created the problem. To yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, but then the the ambiguous part is that um, one like either way. It would have came, come out at the the end, net result would have been the same because it turned out that the the collapsed banks actually had more or less capital to pay these um, deposits. Yeah. So it didn't really matter who like w- where they came from because they actually came out of the banks anyway at the end. Yeah. Through just normal winding up laws, bankruptcy laws. Exactly. So, so it, 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 was just like it didn't do anything. So we could have skipped the whole ISAVE debate, but by the time this all came to pass, yeah. the momentum was gone, the, the new constitution had been sidelined, all ideas for some sort of new just society had sort of evaporated, people were back to buying campers. and The right-wing <laughs> sort of political-leaning parties were back in power. Yeah, they uh, got elected. The economy in, was booming again. They got elected back in, in 2013. Um, conservatives were back, and I, I guess we can say that was the end of the crisis period, in a way. Things were things were back to normal, but not necessarily in a good way. No, and I mean, we just kind of just let it slide. We just didn't really... Like I said, we kind of didn't go into it. We didn't yeah. really learn a lot from it. But I think, like, um, you know, if we go for like, what if, like, is there a scenario where where Iceland doesn't have doesn't have this economic collapse? Mm. And um, you said that maybe had we had the government maybe sort of realized that having the banks that having banks this big back in two thousand six. Would, was a bad idea and they should sort of like stop them there that maybe would have prevented the collapse mm. maybe but at the same time they may have actually just made the collapse happen earlier because they kind of have being able to like uh, expand abroad through i7 through edge and all these things actually made them last two years longer based on that money in a way yeah, but the the collapse wouldn't have been so severe, no, and because true. it all happened in uh, the U.S. first with Lehman Brothers Bank, yeah. so it would have certainly softened the blow, um, if not prevented completely. But the problem is that the f- mood in society at that time didn't love for it. No, it was just so extreme in the sense of growth and growth and more growth. So if if a politician would have come and said, you know, actually, we should just stop growing now, you know, he, he would probably have been left out of office. So I think politically it would have been very hard. You would have needed very, I think, much much more sensible and stronger leadership than we had to actually to try to dampen this instead of yeah. just trying to build it up constantly. So that's kind of an impossibility. So I guess if we go further back, you have the sort of final... Um, privatization of the banks in 2002 and three, and I guess if that hadn't been sort of bungled up in the way it was, as you described earlier, yeah, and we actually would have sold um, these banks to people competent in banking, yeah, maybe that would actually been have been helpful. It would have been, but it would also have been, I think, unlikely for a character such as David Otson to actually do that. Yeah, maybe. Um, and also, the, the, there didn't seem to be a lot of demand either. Like nobody was really interested in buying those banks. It seems no, there there was some. Bait. Well, I, I don't think that was actually 
ever completely tried. No, I guess not. It, it wasn't because they tried to do it the sensible way. <laughs> they actually, they just never tried to do it the sensible way. So they went straight to to the front, and uh, there wasn't big public debate. It seemed, I think, it seemed very complicated to people. There, there were, um, but yeah, if we can blame Davioton as the originator, then the best way to prevent everything happening the way it did would have been to remove him from power, um, which actually could have happened in 91, because he uh, he won an election against the head of the Independence Party, the Conservative Party, Thorsten Paulson. It was a very oh, yeah. different character. Yeah, uh, he Thorsten Paulson is still around. He still writes great uh, op-eds online. Yeah. He's a very sort of... Um, you know, he's kind of like this kind of more grounded, boring politician. Yeah. Kind of want to be running things because they, because of, they don't do rash, um, ideologically driven things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he actually, he was prime minister in the late 80s and then he lost, um, uh, he, he lost to Davidson as, as the chairman of the Independence Party. Yeah, which again led to Davidson winning the general election to, in, in to prime minister. In 1991, yeah. yeah. So yeah, maybe if, if that hadn't happened, we actually probably wouldn't have had that same level of privatization going on either. No, we would have had some because it definitely was... Yeah, it was definitely uh, the mood of the, the era. Mood, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it would have been done probably more sensibly and not so manically. Also, Thorsted Paulson was... Uh, was and is very pro EU. Yes. Which was, and those two, the feelings towards the European Union were, the factions were, were debating in the within the Conservative Party and the anti EU wing won. But this could just as easily have been the pro EU yeah, wing. Absolutely. That could have been one of those things. And, and, in, and maybe we, we instead then we would have entered the EU in the mid-90s, just like Sweden, yeah. Denmark. And uh, yeah, the Denmark was earlier, but Sweden and Finland and Austria. Yeah, sorry, Denmark was in the, oh yeah. We would have adapted the Euro, which um, also might, would have uh, led to the Krona not collapsing on us. No, but at the same time, laws. at the same time, wouldn't we, like, in that scenario, wouldn't we just have ended up like Greece or something? Like or or Ireland or or Portugal or Spain in two thousand eight, nine, and ten, sort of like, you know, for for reasons, First. you know, for kind of like the reasons that we we took up the euro, you know, we everybody's wages went up, but our production didn't really match like you know German levels or something. Mm. We would have sort of built up debt like Ireland, and then. We well, we did, like we, a... we did build up debt anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but uh, potentially, but not necessarily. No, uh, that's, um, what I'm saying is like if we if we have a, a foreign like a different currency, we're still like every EU member more or less running our own economy, and we're pretty incompetent at that anyway. Mm. Well, <laughs> the, wondering about the the end result of that. Yeah, I mean, the debate about the Krona uh, is ongoing. And now, because we've been having inflation, it's still an issue again. But, well, I guess ultimately the volcano would have saved us anyway, <laughs> irrespective of the currency. Volcanoes have, have not always been good to Iceland. No, no, we've we've talked, we've covered that. Uh, yeah, I refer we've, you we've to had some some mean volcanoes too. I refer you to episode three. They've tried three uh, episode three. They volcanoes have tried to kill us. 
throughout the ages, but lately they've been very good to us. There was the wow. AF Atlético in 2010, which brought, you know, which saved the economy by mass tourism. And then there was the Fagradals eruption, which is also a nice, pretty, touristy eruption that sort of brought back tourism after COVID. And then another one nearby there in 2022, and then uh, a new one this summer. And But now we're moving into the territory of like... Uh, yeah, they're, they're, getting, they're getting too close to, to actually places where people live. They're, yeah, I mean, the, the whole town of uh, Grintavik, which is about 10 kilometers south of the Blue Lagoon, yeah. was evacuated on November 10th, Yeah, just like not, not that long ago. And people have not been allowed to move back. And they're probably gonna, not going to be allowed in for a while because there's still magma building up under the Blue Lagoon area. Yeah. And, uh, nobody knows what's going to happen next. So we might actually have a more of a hostile volcano eventually on our hands. Yeah, we might, but let us hope not. Let's hope that... Let's, uh, let's hope for another cute little eruption. Yeah. No damage and no deaths. And the next series will not be what if the great eruption of 2024 <laughs> had hadn't decimated Iceland. <laughs> yeah, recorded in New Zealand or whatever. Yeah, because there are no volcanoes there. Uh, so. are, are, are there? <laughs> they have earthquakes. Uh, maybe maybe we should just go to some place that doesn't have neither. We'd, we'd move to Sweden. No volcanoes, no earthquakes. No, but, but welfare system. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever see the Eiffel eruption? Yeah, uh, from afar, yeah. Yeah, it was very interesting. It's completely... Different to what I've expected is like this huge mushroom cloud that mm-hmm. just keeps on going, and it's so big that it has its own uh, lightning yeah, <laughs> system, almost its own kind of small weather system. Yeah, yeah, I, I could see it very, very, very well from um, the farm where I grew up, um, and the, and you can see both Eyjafjallajökull and Hekla, and I've seen Mount Hekla erupt also from the same view. Um, so it's yeah, I saw it pretty well. Yeah. But I never got close. It, no. it looked. Uh, I've seen the pictures only. It looked thoroughly post-apocalyptic in the ash fall. It did. Uh, uh, but then the the Fartos, uh, okay, no, it was it was so nice and pretty. It was like you know. A, child making a paper mache model of a, a volcano. It's yeah. exactly the way you imagine a volcano. It's a small black mountain and then it has this really orangey thing bubbling up. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I saw the... I saw... I, I hiked up to all of these eruptions the past three ones. Yeah. And uh, they were all really like amazing to behold, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's like a... It's an amazing experience. It doesn't get old either, which is yeah, it's kind of like it's always slightly different. It's always slightly different. It just doesn't. It doesn't like you'll never reach the stage where you're like, nah, I'll stay home. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm up for another trip down there. Yeah, no, no, two love. Those are exactly the same. Yeah, so it's uh, they were lovely, but at the same time, like um, they could felt a lot scarier. Yeah, and I'm and Mount Hecla kind of feels kind of a little too too scary too. Yeah, Scotland. And and if the volcano had been, if the wind had been blowing in a different direction, it yeah, wouldn't it have gone south, but it would have, you know, swamped all the Reykjavik with ash and probably led to a huge disaster. But Yeah, but uh, I mean, the countryside where I'm from, which is sort of uh, northwest of the 
volcano. They they got like half a day of of ash, which is great because they didn't have to use any fertilizer. That yeah, it was just per- just the perfect dash you needed. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I guess this is this is it. I think we've we've uh, managed to uh, reach the conclusion that one way or another or another there would have been an economic burst, and when one way or the other the volcano would have saved us. Yeah, I mean that's quite determinist. I think we could, <laughs> <laughs> and very much not in the spirit of what if, but maybe <laughs> maybe history is all yeah, determined. Yeah, like yeah, it, it could only have gone this way. Yes, we're we're both Calvinists now. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So Yonde, what are you going to be doing? You're still publisher of the Way to Be Grapevine. Yeah, I hope hope I'm still going to be that when this gets published online. Yeah. Which, uh, what about you? Are you are you leaving the country again? I'm heading off to uh, Berlin. So I'm gonna write a nonfiction book about Berlin and and also my family there and and me and probably also David Bowie because he was there. True. <laughs> uh, uh, will it be? Will it feature Iggy Pop? Uh, anything about David Bowie in Berlin will definitely feature Iggy Pop. Um, makes sense. What about crowd rock in general? Yeah, some of it. I mean, it's sort of, it's a 50-year segment. There's my grandmother's there in the 20s, great-grandmother, when she meets my great-grandfather, moves to Iceland. Then there's David Bowie, completely unrelated, but in the 70s, and then and me today. So it's sort of telling a story of a city uh, in these five segments. And then... Uh, uh, a guy in Greenland just read my newest book, Stridsbjarmar, which is about the war in Ukraine, but mm-hmm. also my attempts at weight loss, again, completely unrelated. And he offered me to be a reindeer farmer in Greenland. He said that's a perfect way to get into shape. So, uh, Are you thinking about it? Yeah, I'm not thinking about it. I'm going to do it. I mean, You're doing it? So when someone offers you to be a reindeer farmer in Greenland, you just you don't say no. So when you... <laughs> When you when 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 that's when 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 is that on the agenda? Uh, in the middle of May, it's possible to sail uh, up to the place where he is because until then it's too frozen. So I'm thinking mid-May. So if you go there, you're gonna get stuck. No, I mean they, they drop me off on a mountain, but they say they'll check up on me every 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 weekend or so. So it should be fine. Um, Do you think this is the most extreme uh, weight loss attempt you've done so far? <sighs> yeah, my. Uh, when I when I went to the front lines in Ukraine, it was for for other and and uh, more ideological reasons uh, to support the Ukrainians. So yeah, but this will be the this, this time it'll work, and and probably I'll be writing a book about that too. Well, I mean, you kind of have to. Uh, I don't think uh, I, <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't think you should get away with like becoming a reindeer. Uh, farmer and not write a book about it. Yeah, no. Will you get a gun? Will there be polar bears? I mean, there's a lot of questions. Yes. Is, is there going to be weight loss? Will you be measuring it? Um, will you be fishing out of the ice? Will you meet any seals? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm sure that if you have to outrun polar bears on a regular basis, it, it's going to be... It's, it's uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's really going to induce you to, to, to start Taking up jogging. Yeah, it will. And sprinting. Sprinting yeah. exercises. Sprinting, yeah. You're, you're into that. Totally. But I'd rather not sprint against a polar bear. No. I'm, I'm not that... Uh, I'm not that sure of my abilities. 
Yeah, I'm. I am not neither. So <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but if I if I do return, uh, then you know. Yeah, if you don't, uh, do you have any last wishes? <laughs> <laughs> I have some months to think about that. <laughs> yeah, just, just e- email me the details for the tombstone or something. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they find the rest of me. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's been this has been interesting and yeah, it's been fun. Maybe we will do it again sometime. I hope so. Another, I hope so. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. We've been Jon Trusti Sjöroson and Valur Gunnarsson. Uh, uh, have a have a great life. <sighs> yes. Till the next one. <laughs> bye bye. This podcast was produced by Sentry Freyr Stenson. The book, What if Vikings had conquered the world and other questions of Icelandic and Nordic history by Valur Gunnarsson is out now on Salka Publishing. Find it on salka.is or the Grapevine online store. This has been a Reykjavik Grapevine production. For news, events, culture and travel advice, head to grapevine.is.